Join me as we pray to him. Lord Jesus, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of confusion, you are the one who is still sovereign. We thank you for showing us that every single day. And as we learn from your word today, I just pray that you would, in fact, impress that, not just upon our hearts, but impress that on us in such a way that it changes our way of thinking, the way of living, the way of operating, the way we make decisions, the way we get up in the morning as we go out of here. I pray that your word would be that powerful in us today. And Lord, we're asking you to really touch the lives of people who are coming here with a whole bunch of truckload of circumstances that can really kind of take the air right out, take the joy right out of a life. Because only you know what it is we're all dealing with. And only you can go to the heart because you're the only one that can deal with all this. And Lord, at the same time, for the rest of us who maybe we're on top of the world, that we would pause long enough to realize, ask ourselves why, and that we would pause long enough to realize that these days, the times in which we live, the days in which we live, the life that you've given us are meant for so much more and so much wonder. And I just pray, Lord, that you would show that to us today in your word as we look at this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Thank you for being here, Jesus, and for already hearing our praise and hearing our prayers and being here in such a powerful way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You uh, can be seated. Um, and let me, as you're, as you're doing that, let me start off by waxing a little philosophical for a couple of minutes, two or three minutes, um, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, and it has a real impact on your life and my life, on your faith and my faith. And it's this. If you look at the New Testament, the New Testament makes it really, really clear that almost pretty much none of our lives turn out exactly the way, precisely the way that we as human beings envision them turning out. It's it. It's real clear about that. But it's not a Debbie Downer. It's not a, sorry if your name's Debbie. It's not a, a Downer. It, it's it's about, uh, it's about joy. Because the reality is, if, if it turned out the way I envision my life or you envision your life all the time, we would miss God's best. So whatever's next in 2018, the rest of 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, we're not going to live that long, but 2120, whatever. Whatever's next we can take a bit of a chill pill and yet be energized all at the same time because he really is sovereign in the midst of all that. He is the one who makes things really real and shows himself to be really real in our lives. And In fact, I, I was listening this week. This sort of played into it. There's been a whole series of things that have happened that played into this kind of this thought about how you know, it's his vision for our life that really makes all the difference in the world and it shows up in our lives and it's actually proof that he's alive and it's proof that we're his followers and all that. Um, I was listening to a podcast that I listen to in the morning oftentimes, uh, Albert Muller, uh, called The Briefing, and this week he made a statement that he's made before, but it kind of stuck with me. He said, ontology, not oncology, ontology always trumps an autonomy. And what that means is, is reality, which is what ontology is, it's a fancy way of saying ontology, uh, or a fancy way of saying reality, even if it's the reality I wish for, but it's not really real, Re the reality, the real reality, ontology, always in the end winds up trumping my individual autonomy. And that's significant today because we have a lot of voices and a lot of people telling us, well, you can create your own reality. 
You can create, you know, the circumstance you're in and expect everybody else to believe it, how you were born, where you were born, who you were, and who you are. You can choose to identify as whatever you want. And, and you, you know, whether it's real or not. What, what, what that statement, that, uh, that, that reality trumps my autonomous individual choices, what that means is, is no amount of value signaling is going to change it in the end. And here, here, in fact, I'll go out on a limb, all right? God's vision for our life always, always, always winds up coming back and people begin to realize it. And ultimately, we all realize it at the end, whether we did until then or not. Uh, my, my, I'm, here's, here's a limb I'm going to go out on. When, 100 years from now, when historians write the, um, their uh, history of what happened during this time and this age, in this third secular age, so to speak, when they, when they write the, his, the, 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 the history of it, I can almost guarantee you that they will revert back to some of the binaries that we're told we're not supposed to think about anymore. And what I mean by binaries is I mean that there is a, such a thing as a man and a woman. That there is such a thing as good and evil. And I'm not putting, you know, man or woman as good and evil. I mean, those are binaries. That's a separate category. Uh, truth and falsehood. Light and darkness. Those binaries are true. They're really real. Uh, what got me thinking about this this summer was I wrote a paper this summer, which I'm hoping to get published at some point, but you're not going to want to read it, so I'll just tell you about it now. It's a, kind of an academic thing and so forth. And you'll never guess who it was on. <laughs> it was on C.S. Lewis. But actually, it wasn't technically on C.S. Lewis. So it was on an interview I did with my mentor and friend, Jim Houston, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And, and what, he, what he wound up uh, kind of sharing with me that was sort of a revelation, was sort of new, and why I wrote this paper is that C.S. Lewis's main thing, the reason he wrote the whole thing, Lewis, according to Houston, told him that it's all about the reductionism. It's pretending that my reality is my reality and your reality, but sooner or later our realities conflict if we get to choose our realities, and I have to respect yours, you have to respect mine. And what that does is it winds up ultimately deconstructing what it means to be a human being, and people get hurt and get destroyed by it. And that's what Lewis was talking about with regard to reductionism. And then I was reading a new book that's really good on the sexual revolution, by the way. A couple of pastors told me about it. It's really helpful, and it's also very compassionate. Um, it's, it's by a gal named Nancy Piercy, who's a, a, an apologist, a brilliant thinker, uh, and it's called Love Thy Body. And right there, in, I'm only in the first chapter of it by now, but right in the introduction, she quotes a quote that I'd run across over the summer by Lewis that talks about this very thing. Look at this. It says, the Christian and the materialist, the materialist being somebody who says, this is all there is, the material world, that's it. The Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. You know, if this is all there is, or isn't it all there is? Is there a God or isn't there a God? The one who is wrong will act in a way that simply doesn't fit the real universe. Consequently, with the best, that is, in the best intentions, with the best will in the world, he will be helping his fellow creatures to their destruction. You see, that's what Paul is going, that's sort of the attitude that Paul's talking about here, because he's answering some legitimate questions by the Philippians uh, in the second chapter, uh, or second half of the first chapter of Philippians. He's answering some questions that they had because they were concerned for him, but he's saying, look, reality's not what you think. God's doing something here. Because he's in prison, and he's under house arrest, but he's getting evidence left and right that God's going to deliver him, and that there's a reason for him being there, and that there's a reason for him to get out and see the Philippians again. And he's, he's uh, being watched 24-7 by a praetorian Roman guard. 
And, and, and you know, he's even chained to them. And, and, and God's even using that to spread the gospel. And so Paul winds up in, in the opposite side of these circumstances that you would expect because he begins to see Jesus' vision for why this stuff is going on and what is happening. And he winds up with this incredible sense of joy and hope saying, man, this is what I'm living for. It's really incredible. In fact, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, because we're going to take a look at that. If you're new to the Bible, you can use the table of contents, or, uh, you know, because it's just kind of nice to have the paper in your hand, or you can watch it on the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for it, it's in the New Testament. It's to the right of Romans, right of Corinthians, the two Corinthian letters, the right of Galatians, the right of Ephesians. If you get to Colossians or Thessalonians, you've got to turn back left. Those aren't political statements. It's just right and left. Um, so get back to uh, Philippians chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to move pretty quickly through uh, verses 12 through 26, and then we're going to slow down in uh, 27 to 30, uh, because in 12 through 26, he makes one statement after another after another about this vision that Jesus has for all of our lives, and how we inter- inter- interface with it, and how we interact with it, and how, how we can see it in our lives. Does that sound good? So that's where we're going to go. Let's, let's move quickly, uh, but start right off the bat with verse 12. It says, now... I want you to know, after everything he said about resilient joy, what we talked about last week, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So when he says, I want you to know, what he's saying is, is you've sent me some questions. Because apparently they had, because there's this guy named Epaphroditus that's been going back and forth between uh, Caesarea and or, uh, I mean, Caesarea or uh, Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, wherever Paul is in prison, between Philippi and there, uh, you'll meet Epaphroditus in the next uh, chapter, in chapter 2, and Timothy. They've been going back and forth. So apparently they've been saying, hey, are you okay? And what's on? Here's a gift. Here's some money. They'd sent some money uh, to help take care of him. Uh, and he's saying, I want you to know that, you know, there's some really incredible stuff happening. To advance the gospel, verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole uh, palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, that this is why I'm in here. So, so when he says, what has happened? You may have a translation that says, my circumstances have turned out. In other words, he's talking about a turn of events. He's not just talking about, oh, my circumstances stink. He's saying, no, no, there's a turn of events here that I want you to see. And, 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 and this, this word for what has happened to me, he's saying that what has been prophesied about me has actually been fulfilled. In Acts 21, you can read there, in Acts 21, for example, before he gets to Caesarea, Agabus, a, a Christian prophet, prophesies that Paul's going to be wind, have some difficulties and wind up in prison. And that happens shortly thereafter. And, and uh, in, in, back in chapter 9 of Acts, when Paul is converted, remember, he falls off his horse because of the bright light. He gets knocked off his horse, and he's still blind a few days later, three days later. And, and God says to this guy, this Christian guy in Damascus, where Paul is living at the time because he can't see, he says to Ananias, this guy, he says, I want you to go, and I want you to talk to Paul. And Ananias says, uh, God, are you, did I hear you right? Because Paul's killing people like me. Yeah, yeah go anyway. It'll be all right. So he goes, and, uh, and he gets there, and one of the things he says to Paul is, oh, by the way, you're going to share the gospel with kings. In other words, the rulers of this age, the rulers of the known world, you're going to get to share the gospel with them. And then the scales fall, call, fall from Paul's eyes, and he begins to follow Jesus. And, 
And now, in, in chapter 26 then, he's in Caesarea, he's standing before Agrippa, and just like that story Chris told a minute ago, King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa says to Paul after he gets to the end of his speech, he says, you almost made me be a Christian, but I'm not going to go there yet. And so he did speak before these powerful, powerful people, possibly even before Caesar. And so he's beginning to see this thing play out that is exactly what God told him would happen. And secondly, look what he's, when he says the advance of the gospel. This, this is a word that means strong prog- progress. In fact, it means to advance or to spread in a way that is unlikely, a way that you didn't expect it to happen. In, in the most unlikely places, through the most unlikely people. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is I have a completely different reading of my circumstances than you might have. Even though I'm in prison in this situation, that, something amazing has happened. And one of the things that's amazing has happened is the palace guard has, some of them have become Christians and they're talking about the gospel among themselves. Now understand who the palace guard is. These aren't the three stooges here. These are the toughest of the tough. This is the Praetorian Guard. This is Caesar's Guard. It was started in the age of Augustus, which was years before this. And those guards were all centurions. All the guards were centurions. In other words, they commanded at least 1,000 people, some of them 10,000 people. They, were, they got double wages. They got the best food. And they wouldn't even elect a Caesar unless they ran it by the Praetorian Guard first. Now some of these praetorians were not just in Rome, they were spread around places like Ephesus and Caesarea, around the empire, if you will. And Paul is saying, I'm starting to see it happen in the praetorian guard, and if it can happen in the praetorian guard, it can happen in the whole empire. That's what he's, he's starting to get excited about, the possibility. Imagine these guards who become Christians, and <laughs> they say, hey, man, dude, you want to change shifts with me, man? No, man, Paul's going to talk about why the uh, Roman, gar- Roman gods are baloney, man. And I've been thinking that for a long time. I know, but tomorrow he's going to talk about love. I'll trade you for love. You don't want love. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> right? Imagine what that must have been like. Because I mean, they're starting to, they're, they're, they must have traded shifts because some of them had become Christians and they just wanted to hear more. And Paul's saying, wow, this is, you, you don't, I know you heard I was in prison. It's okay. Thank you for being concerned. But look, Christ is starting to do something here. Verse 14, even this, he gives a major illustration of it. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. Most of the other Christians around here looking at me haven't been discouraged. They become confident and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In other words, Paul is saying, I've prayed and prayed. And look, I've got plans I, I prayed that I wouldn't have to go to prison, but now that I'm here, I realize this is the best place because it's become a megaphone for the gospel, and I want you to know this. Thank you for being concerned for me, but I want you to know that God has a bigger vision, that Jesus has a grander vision for my life and for you than, he, than we could have conjured up ourselves. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love and knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I want you to notice two words right there. First of all, in in verse 16, the words put here literally means appointed. It was a military term, like if you were appointed for the night watch, you would be put here for the night watch. Um, It became a metaphor for any task that has been given you by an important person. And, And Paul's saying, God is actually appointed me and placed me here for that, this exact purpose. 
And this is stunning to him. And he, he expects it to be stunning to us. I, 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 I thought about this earlier this week because I ran across this verse before about 12 years ago. This statement I got, God has put this in my life. It's, it's not that God puts the crud in your life. It's not that he creates it. He doesn't have to because we live in a fallen world. But he uses even the crud for the good. And in 2006, I heard those dreaded words. You have cancer. Now, I don't want to overplay this because mine was much easier to deal with than many things that you've gone through, so, okay? So just to be clear on that. But it still is a, ra- a cage-rattling thing to hear those words. That's a shocker. And, and the week before I had surgery, we went up to Seattle, my, Sharon and uh, two of the girls, and as we got up there, I, was, I was, probably wasn't much fun. We were just kind of getting away for the weekend. And, um, but we went to church that Sunday because my wife always makes sure we go to church on vacation. And she's right. Men whose wives are at the women's retreat this week, way to go, You're, you showed up. Right? But uh, as we get into this church, I always go to the info table and, and see uh, the Welcome Center and see if there's anything I might want to steal and use for us. So um, I'm looking at and I walk in, and there's the, there's the newspaper. They had, a, they had a church newspaper there. It was a big deal, newspaper. But right there above the fold on the newspaper, it said, don't waste your cancer. <laughs> oh, it freaked me out. It's like, what? You know? <laughs> God, is that what it says? I'm going to close my eyes and look again. To, don't waste your cancer. And what it turned out to be was an article written by a friend of that church, Dr. John Piper, who maybe some of you have heard of. Uh, he's a pastor in uh, Minnesota. And he had had the exact same diagnosis and had the exact same surgery about a month before I'd seen that article. And in this article, uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer, he gives 10 reasons why the scriptures say that God can even use that for good in your life and for his good for the gospel. And, and, and this verse was in there. The, the, the God doesn't cause it, he, but he does allow you to enter into situations that he can show himself strong in the midst of it. And not just strong, he can use the situation as a proof that he is who he is and what's really real and what's really true about him and about you. In fact, that's what the word defense of the gospel means. This is the perfect Sunday to talk about uh, think, question, believe, because you know what the word for defense is there? It's the Greek word apologia, which yes, we mean apology, but it's not the kind of apology like saying, oh, I'm sorry that I'm a Christian. No, that's for a legal defense. It's saying, these are why we believe. And he's saying, my imprisonment, my circumstances have actually worked toward proving the gospel. And even the Praetorian Guard is starting to believe it. I mean, this is really stunning information that Paul is moving toward. And what I think he's trying to help us understand is that not only is, um, is, is our vision, the vision that we come up with, it's just flat out overrated, okay? Because God's vision is so much more awesome. It's not to put us down or any of that. But it's the reality that in Jesus' vision for your life, the impossible becomes possible. You may not say, I can't believe that I'm in prison here. I can't believe that I got that diagnosis. Is there anything good that can come of it? And I'll be honest to you, that came to my mind. Is there anything good, we were in a building program stuff, that can be coming from this? And look what God did. I mean, the impossible becomes possible even in the midst of the 
craziest circumstances. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us is reality for those who are Jesus followers. In fact, Jesus taught this, didn't he? When his disciples were struggling a little bit, wondering about how their, their, their salvation and their deliverance was going to be accomplished, here's what Jesus said to them. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I mean, the reality is, is life happens. But life, that's a different plane. God is so much above, beyond that that he can even use the happenings of life, the crud of life, for good is what Paul is trying to say here. I mean, you may be in a situation, you may feel like a crud magnet, but you're not. You're not a crud magnet. God intends to use this for good. You just may be God's apologia for the people around you, the defense, the proof that he is who he says he is, and he's a keeper of the promises that he's given. That could be it. That's what Paul's saying that he certainly has become realized that he is. He had different plans, but God had a whole different plan, and he's saying it's a far better vision than God's best. In fact, even the people who are anti-Paul that are preaching because he's in prison, look what happens. Verse 17, the former preach, that is those who are preaching against Paul then rather than for Christ, preach out of selfish ambition. In other words, it's, not, it's the word that makes the difference, the word of God. That's where the power is. It's not in the presenter. Because God can even use this. Watch this. Out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? If you are an underliner, underline those four words and put them on your fridge. What does it matter? The, most import, the, the important thing, the big deal, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I can rejoice. I rejoice. You see? Look at that selfish ambition, first of all. You know, this is part of that personal autonomy that winds up destroying other people that he's talking about. My selfish ambition in a society that's more and more driven into itself and the inertia is for people to be driven into itself. One of the first things Jesus has to do is to reverse is that, that, that societal inertia that is when someone becomes a Jesus follower, that's what has to happen. It has to, the inertia has to be changed. There to be driven into ourselves, but, you know, looking up to God, you know, uh, motivated in that direction. I mean, but, but wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, what, think about this. Wouldn't it be great if God brought the Apostle Paul back to preach this sermon on Instagram? Oh, no, no, no. In fact, here. Pray for this. God, bring the Apostle Paul back to speak before Congress, right? About selfish ambition. I mean, what would that be like? He is the God who lived in the impossible. So let's just pray about that. Because what he's saying is, is that all this other hooey, all this crud floating around, the enemy would want me to think that, ah, that proves that there's no God, he's not anywhere to be seen. But what does it matter? Because look at this, look at the important thing. It's actually happening. The thing that's near and dear to my heart, it's actually happening. You see, Paul is saying, regardless of my circumstances, uh, and feel, that feeling that we all have it sometimes, this is why we need the community for one another to help each other out when we feel this feeling. Like, can anything good come out of my circumstances? And I'm not putting down anybody's circumstances. There's severe ones here, I know. But this, what he's saying is, is the impossible, in square quotes, 
The impossible that God makes possible is far more momentous than my ideas of what is important. He's saying the important thing. I've seen the main thing, and it is amazing. In fact, it's evidence that Christ is with me, that evidence that Christ is going to deliver me, as we're going to see in a minute. It's evidence that, that I'm right on track with what God wants to do. It's not something I did. I didn't get sucked into this because, you know, uh, I said something wrong or whatever else. It's because, of, it's because God's going to use this to further his gospel. In fact, look, he just starts to get more and more excited. Look at this. Uh, halfway through verse 18. He says, yes, I will rejoice, continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out, there's that turn out word again, turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope. Now, I just got to pause here, because Paul probably made this word up, this expectation word. The sense of anticipation, just kind of leaning in, literally mean that you're sticking out your neck looking for something good that you expect. He's saying, that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. That's what I'm, I'm beginning to, I just can hardly wait to see what God does. And the reason we say, I say he probably made it up because the only place in all of ancient Greek literature that we ever see it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, and right here, and and. and and Paul is saying, I'm leaning in to see this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will not in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be revealed, exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he gets down to the bottom line, and he starts to debate with himself. This is pretty incredible. Watch this. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He's not yippy-skippy about death. He's just saying, I'd rather die to myself. I'd rather be okay with the fact that Christ is more important than me and so forth because that's where the, the good stuff is. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It does mean that when he dies, he believes he will be with Christ. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue to be with you all, with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. There's joy again. That's about the fifth time in just you know, 26 verses that we've seen it in Philippians. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. You see, he's looking at this, and he's realizing, you know, I don't know how, what's next exactly, but I'm getting a whiff that it's going to be something amazing. And he's getting so excited about it that the structure of the way this is written in the original letter you know, Paul was living in a time of, uh, where there was no TV, obviously. They did have theater, but he writes it in such a dramatic way that it's evidence of what he's, what he's feeling, what he's doing, and he's starting to bounce like a ping-pong ball off the, off the walls of this prison. Because he, what he does is he gives like five or six, bam, 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 short shots of statements, and then he gives this long run-on sentence in verses 25 to 26, just keeps going, going, going. And, and, and it's, it's like his excitement is building, his, and he just can't hardly contain himself. In fact, let me read it again and, and say, this is how I think something like Paul dictated it. Excuse me if I add some words that aren't in the original language. 
verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will be mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desired of a part to be with Christ, uh, which was better by far, but it is more necessary for you to, that I remain in the body. Either way, it's really cool. Convinced of all this, that's the part I added. Convinced of all this, I know that I will remain and I will continue to be with you all in, in your progress and the joy of the faith, so that my being with you again, your boasting in Christ, will you know, abound all the more on account of me. And let's party. I mean, that's kind of how he does it. He's just, he's just he's on account of me, abounding, bouncing back and forth. I mean, can you imagine being the Roman guard that's sitting there chained to Paul's arm as he's dictating this to somebody? For me to live as Christ is die as gain. But I don't know what to choose. I'm so excited about this. You know, I mean, can you imagine? It must have been crazy. You know, the guy probably needed some surgery after that. But it's it, it just phenomenal what, he, what, what he's, he's so in the midst of this circumstance that we would say, oh, that's such a bummer. Sorry, Paul. He's like, no, 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 don't, no, sorry. No, sorry. What he's trying to tell us, I think, is that you don't go out and you know, find God's vision for your life. That's one of the things that's sort of destructive in our age. And I know sometimes people mean it well-intentioned-wise. Most of the time they don't. But the phrase, oh, she found religion. Oh, he found Jesus. You don't find anything. You bump into the reality of who he really is. And if you find Jesus and find you, most often it's in our kind of categories, it's in our, on our own terms, and you know, it's sort of a watered-down, wet puppy begging at the door kind of Jesus. And, 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 but when you realize who he is, and that's what Paul's realizing in this prison, who, who again, for you know, the umpteenth time he's realizing it, but the, that Jesus is who he is, he, he, he says he is, you don't find Jesus' dream or his vision for your life, you receive it. And Paul's saying, I just bumped in. I had no idea that he had this vision for my life, but look what's happening. And that's why I'm pretty sure I'm going to see you again. So don't worry about that, but that's not the point. The point is, is that we need to take this whole thing, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm not in prison, whether I get to see you or whether I don't, regardless of the circumstances, we, may, we need to take this as what it really is, and that is incredible proof that God is real and that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he'd do in my life and fulfilling it all and, and, and causing it to to live out. And you see, he's, he's talking about something deeper than just finding Jesus. In the most unlikely place, in the most unlikely people, praetorian guards? Really? I mean, that, yeah. It's just like, you know, that, that's like, you know, you're, you're guarded by terrorists or something, and all of a sudden they start coming to Jesus. That's what this is. Um. But Paul brings all of this together in terms of the reality of Jesus' vision for your life and mine in these last few verses, beginning at 27. He's talking here about, okay, how do we live this out for us? He's trying to bring it home for the Philippians, and I'm pretty sure he's trying to bring it home for Eastridgers in the 21st century. Look what happens. Look what he says, rather. He says, whatever happens... In case you missed those two, let me just say that again. Whatever happens, whatever happens next year, 10 years, five years, next week, do you use that thought, whatever happens? 
Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together. There's the striving together. There's the community. So he's talking, okay, that you will have this, but you're not alone. you got each other now. So be together and, and help each other, pull each other up, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. But that you will be saved. And that by God, that God will save you. So he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, he's saying, live Jesus' way, the way Jesus taught us, the way I taught you. So when he says that, and he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, what's worthy of the gospel? Well, it's living the spiritual practices. It's really bless that we just went through in the last series. You see, these things all fit together, which is why it's important to kind of catch the whole thing. The spiritual practices are prayer, begin with prayer. They're listening to God's word and listening to other people. They're eating, did you know that's a spiritual practice? It can be. Eating together, serving other people, that's a spiritual practice. And then knowing what your story is and being ready to tell it, that's a spiritual practice. All those are what used to be called spiritual disciplines, but it's not about, our, our idea of discipline has become crazy. So let's just call it spiritual practices. He's saying, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that, by doing those things. That's the Jesus way. And then he, he gives a litany of what that looks like. Look what he says. He says, Jesus' vision for our lives is that this will happen, that we live like Jesus has made you alive, because that's the real truth, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that you and I have been made new creatures, that we're alive, that we died in our sins, but Jesus has brought us back to life through the power of his resurrection. He'll talk about that in chapter 3. Whether plans work out or not, that is, whether our plans work out or not, because God's plan always works out, keep standing up together. You know, keep being resilient. Keep popping up if you feel like you're knocked down. Help, you know, if, if you see your brother and sister in Christ, help them pop up. And when you're going through it, they'll help you pop up. Pulling in the same direction, is what he literally says, unafraid of what's next. And that is some serious evidence that Christ is in you, that he's really real, and that that vision of the reality and those circumstances is in fact reality, that that's really true about what it is. And he gives one specific illustration about this, about why this is, this, this is possible. Because the Philippians know something about a thing called suffering that we hate to talk about. But the thing is, is we all have suffering in our life. And every age and every situation. So why wouldn't we want to talk about it? Like, how do, how do you deal with it? But the Philippians are already past that. They're beyond the suffering. They're on to, okay, now how are we going to deal with this? And so Paul says this is a major illustration to them, but we can listen in. Look at this, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, so you believe in him, but also to suffer for him, just like he is. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now's here that I still have. He says, hey, you're just like me. You're being persecuted for your faith too, so... Whether or not you get that diagnosis, whether or not you're in prison like I am, whether or not you in the future Philippians or East Ridgers, that somehow that persecution's in the future for the faith, regardless of how that is, it's all a part of God's vision for your 
life because what Paul knows and what the Philippians know is something that we tend to forget about this little word granted. You know what the word granted means? It's almost never used this way in the New Testament, when it's, but it's usually used in terms of God graciously giving you something. He graciously gave me suffering? Well, he, didn't, he didn't cause it, but he graciously gives you a situation that allows you to see just how awesome he is and how much he loves you. That's what he's talking about. In fact, the reason we know that is because this word granted oftentimes is translated forgive or pardon. So whatever it is that's happening, it's not because you did this or you did that or God sent that or God sent that. It's because you're living in a fallen world, but you can live above and beyond it. That's the wonder. That's why Paul always talks about suffering, because it's proof of the miracle that we can live above and beyond the circumstances, not with our head in the clouds and air in our ears, but with reality of knowing what's really real and really true. You see, in our world today, man, we need that stuff so much. We need to know that we need to know the pointing of reality because reality is being questioned every single day of our lives, and it's being questioned in the movies we see, in the media we hear, and the conversations we have. It's being questioned all the time, not just your Christian reality, but reality in general. But what's what's stunning to me is that when you look at the, like the way, for example, as one example, the way our entertainer, the people who entertain us, think. You know, they, they may give us this incredible dystopian view of reality, but, every, but, but in the midst of all that, what pops up are the very values and the very hopes and the very dreams and the very vision that life might be like what God created it to be life in the first place. Have you noticed that? I mean, you can shove God out of the picture as much as you want to, but you still want the same things for your life. You still want that resilience. You still want the joy. You still want the hope, even if you shove God out of the picture. And that's what pops up when we see these, these images on the screen. There's one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies. I want to show you just a short clip, about a minute and 50 seconds, of a, of a piece of that movie that illustrates exactly what I think Paul is saying from someone who's in prison. And by the way, Mark Rylance, who's going to be speaking here, he won an Oscar for this. Again, stunning. The people think, oh, this is so cool. Watch this. Standing there like that, you remind me of a man who used to come to our house when I was young. My father used to say, watch this man. So I did, every time he came. And never once did he do anything remarkable. And I remind you of him? <laughs> this one time, I was about the age of your son. Our house was overrun by partisan border guards. Dozens of them. My father was beaten, my mother was beaten, and this man, my father's friend, he was beaten. And I watched this man. Every time they hit him, he stood back up again. So they hit him harder. Still, he got back to his feet. 
I think because of this, they stopped the beating. They let him live. Stoiki Muzik. I remember them saying Stoiki Muzik. Which sort of means like a standing man. Standing man. I think that's a good metaphor what Paul's saying. No matter what, we stand up. We're resilient. You see, the point of this book and the point of what we've seen today that Jesus wants us to get that his vision of our life, I mean, his vision for our individual life and purpose for our life and that sort of thing, I'm not talking about, we're talking about this for every believer, every Jesus follower. This is the core of whatever that vision is for our lives. And next week, we're going to talk about what we think the vision that God has led us to for this church, and I encourage you to be here for that. But the reality is, it's not that we've gone off in the corner somewhere and created this little vision and say, God, would you bless that, please? Thank you. No, it's about Him. And it drops into our lives, and He shows us the evidence, and we follow that. But every single one of those visions for all believers include this, a re- irrepressible, resilient joy that's going to make no sense to other people but because we're standing, man, where we, from where we stand, it totally does. It totally makes sense. And I think that's what God wants us to understand about our future and about life with Him. And because here's the thing, once you get that, once we incorporate that into our lives and our church and our families and so forth, oh, the places we will go together and with Him. In fact, it's pretty clear that this is where Paul's going because he, he writes a prayer in the, in the book or in the letter, rather, that's just to the left of Philippians, Ephesians. In chapter 3, he says a prayer that is just amazing. It seems so impossible, but what he's saying is it's more than possible because Jesus can do this. Watch this. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning of verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure to the measure of the fullness of God. Think about that phrase. Is that even possible? To be filled with the measure of the fullness of God because you've got His love in you? Apparently. Now to Him, he closes the prayer this way, to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask, and I can ask a lot, I do every day, of the Lord, or imagine, and I can imagine a lot, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to call the band out here. Just let me say one, two more, a couple more things. I know that when we go through life, especially in these days and age, just like any other age, sometimes you can feel like a crud magnet, right? Like we said, but you're not. You're God's apologia. And so what I'm asking you to do is write down that reference, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. And would you go back sometime this week, at least once, and maybe some of you are going to get excited and you're going to do it every day. 
But go back and pray that prayer to God because he loves to hear his words prayed back to himself, by the way. But just read it through in a prayerful way. Put the pronouns in there that you need to put in there. And pray it back to God for yourself. Yes, go ahead and do that. But pray it for your community of believers, your family of faith. Because if we do that, if, if, if that happened, if he can really do imagine, immeasurably more than we can ask or think, and we pray that we would all have the fullness of Christ, that that would be in here, that that would be in this church body, in this family. Oh, the places we will go. Would you pray with me that prayer as we lead up to next week when we begin to talk about visionary things? And we're also going to talk about the most majestic passage in all the New Testament about who really Jesus is and what Jesus has done and is doing right now in our midst. It's going to be an amazing week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would keep us on that path, that we would go where you envisioned that we would go, and that we would have that sense, like Paul does, the clear evidence that you are present here and that you are doing what you're, you said you're going to do. I pray for those who really need lifting up, and I pray that they'd be able to share that with somebody else, and that someone else, these others around them, would be able to lift them up and encourage them and help them, in fact, be resilient and stand. And that we would pull together in that way, as Paul says. And that that would be proof of the reality that you are really real and that, that's the, that you are the definer of what's real and true. And that our lives are defined by that. And may you go out, may that not just go into our heads, into our ears, or even into our hearts, but it would just change the way we see everything and every day this week and next week and the coming months and throughout the fall. And may that mean a turning point just as, you t- as Paul talked about a turning point in our lives. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for teaching us here, for being here with us. And that's why we pray in your name every week. Amen.